0: Hello and welcome to the fortnightly Danube Institute podcast. I'm John O'Sullivan, the President of the Danube Institute. We're based here in Budapest, and we're a think tank that brings together interesting thinkers and doers from academia, politics, the arts, the media, and business to explore contemporary debates. We have the goal of not only challenging old orthodoxies with new ideas, but perhaps also tempering new orthodoxies with old ideas. We hope you enjoy this podcast, which is co-hosted by two of our fellows, Dr. Callum Nicholson and Dr. David Dusenbury. And now I'll hand over to them.
1: Welcome to this latest episode of the Danube Institute podcast, hosted by me, Callum Nicholson, and David Dusenbury. Today our guest is the former war correspondent, environmentalist, and current lecturer at Matthias Corvinus Collegium, Julius Strauss. Julius has covered many conflicts over the last 20 or 30 years, including Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq, mostly for the Daily Telegraph. He's also just published a piece in the current issue of The Spectator, Letter from Odessa, Life on the Frontline of the New Cold War. So welcome, Julius, thanks for coming in. Um, So first of all, I mean, decades as a war correspondent, still doing some, and what makes a war correspondent, and why did you get into this?
0: Gosh. What makes a war correspondent? Um, I mean, to begin with, one question I've been asked over the years, which I think is totally legitimate, is are war correspondents messed up because they spend a lot of time in wars or do they go to war in the first place because they're messed up? And uh, I mean, one thing that does, not that I had a terrible childhood, but one thing that does characterize war correspondents is they're looking for something, they're searching for something, they've probably got some kind of something that's slightly maladjusted within them that means that they want to do something slightly out of the ordinary. Um, in my case, it wasn't that when I was young, it wasn't that formed. Um, for me, it was a lot to do with the Second World War. I had grown up my father father's Hungarian, both my grandfathers fought in the war. They fought on opposite sides in the war. Um, so I was very conscious of the Second World War. I was born 20 something years after the end of the Second World War, which now seems like something very distant, but it didn't then. And I was sort of brought up in the culture of the Second World War, but nevertheless, it was presented as something that was in the past and would never happen again. That was part of our kind of dirty, violent past, and now we were on a path to a brighter future. So when, as a young, as a young man, I was in Eastern Europe and um, the first violence, meaningful violence I saw was the Romanian Revolution. I was in Romania. Um, I became intrigued by it, intrigued, horrified, scared, a whole mix of different things. Um, And then when the war started in the former Yugoslavia, first of all, the serbo croat War, I went down there several times and then with Bosnia, towards the end of the Bosnian War, really, I was still quite young. um, I became, you know, properly engaged as a sort of a journalist writing about it. So I think, in a sense, war came first for me, and then journalism came second. Um, and it was, a, yeah, it was those things, a curiosity mixed with a sort of a horror of the whole thing. And then, but things change as time goes by. You don't stay in that state for very long.
2: I'm curious, um, I actually heard you uh, discussing this uh, on a on a different podcast, but um, you, were, you were talking about sort of the settlement uh, at the end of the Balkans war and, and some of the problems which linger there, possibly being related to the way the... Uh, the conflict was brought to a conclusion. Do you have any thoughts looking back on the NATO powers involvement or, or on, on things you saw and reported on then, which have had kind of an afterlife?
0: I mean, yes, absolutely. The Dayton Peace Agreement, um, which if my memory serves me correctly, was in December, 1995, was a ceasefire agreement effectively. Um, it was a sort of a peace agreement, but only in the sense that it was designed to stop people fighting and give everybody something that they could walk away with and, and agree not to keep shooting. And um, at the time, perhaps that was the best we could come up with, but it should certainly never have been the template for something long-term, for a long-term settlement. And we can see that in the state of Bosnia today. It's still extremely divided. There's still a lot of tension. There's talk of renewed conflict there. I don't think it'll go that far, and I hope certainly hope it doesn't go that far but it's it's unstable, fundamentally unstable. Um, you know, having watched the Europeans fail there for 1992, 1993, 1994. Finally, the Americans came in and did what they could do. Rare politic, probably a good thing that they did it, but it certainly created some problems going forward.
1: I remember reading in 2011 a book called Can Intervention Work by Rory Stewart. And I think Gerald Naus I believe, was the co-author. And they were talking about the various uh, interventions, uh, liberal internationalist interventions since the mid-90s, the early ones obviously being uh, the Balkan War, but then subsequently Iraq and Afghanistan as well. And as far as I remember, the book was arguing that, really trying to understand why did some work and why did some not. And the argument in the book actually was that the intervention in the Balkans was successful, but then trying to counterpoint that to the failures in, Afra- in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it's interesting that now I would imagine if the book is written today, maybe they wouldn't necessarily see it as as successful in the Balkans, perhaps. But additionally, to what extent, um, obviously, we've just in recent months seen the Americans withdraw from Afghanistan. And we've seen it collapse, I think, quicker than most people expected. And I, I suppose my question, the main question for you there is, Is um, were you surprised it collapsed, or, or at least at the speed it collapsed?
0: I covered Afghanistan for the Daily Telegraph for... I don't know exactly how long, off and on for two years I mean, probably more off on. So let's say a year in total. And I also worked for NATO as a political officer in southern Afghanistan. I worked with the U.S. Marines. I was seconded to the U.S. Marines. So it was a forward posting, it was a combat posting, essentially, um, although my job was not particularly dangerous. Um, so I'd seen Afghanistan from different sides and... To be honest, the sheer level of sort of Western incompetency incompetency in Afghanistan never ceased to amaze me. We were just not good at what we were doing there. And that's not to blame the soldiers on the ground who are very brave and took huge casualties. Um, We just didn't really understand what we were doing. And we didn't perhaps take it not seriously enough, but try and understand a little bit of what was actually happening on the ground. I think if you look at the different interventions, I mean, I've never thought about it in detail, but there is a sort of a league. I mean, I covered the intervention in Sierra Leone in 2000, which was by the by the you know by the scale of these things was successful. It's very short, very sharp. British paratroopers went in, um, and some special forces, and they did stop the advance of the Revolutionary United Front. And subsequently, things got better—not beautiful, but better. Um, I think if we're going down the scale, then the the Bosnian one was relatively successful. The Kosovo intervention was relatively successful, not without problems, definitely, but relatively successful. Iraq, I mean, we do have to remember that Saddam killed a hell of a lot of people, especially Kurds, but not only Kurds, because a lot of Shia as well. Um, So Iraq was definitely a mess after the intervention, no question about it. Would more people have died if Saddam had stayed alive? That's a question we can't really answer. That's not to support the intervention. I think the Iraq intervention was a mistake, especially the way that we did it. Uh, And then probably bottom of the league, if we're just talking about these big ones is Afghanistan. I think it was a complete disaster. Um, Perhaps there was an inevitability that after 9-11, we were gonna go in, the Americans were gonna go in, somebody was gonna go in, but it could have been handled completely differently. Um, almost from the first moment. And as time went by, it it sort of got worse in a sense. So yeah, I don't have a fixed position on this. I'm not particularly ideological on this issue. Is intervention a good thing or a bad thing? I'm not a pacifist. On the other other hand, I do believe that if we're going to go and mess around in other people's countries, we have to take it seriously. We have to know why we're doing it. And we have to live with the consequences of that as well.
2: Could I ask, I mean, when you mentioned the, the number, which is huge, the number of those who have died in the last uh, decade and a half in Iraq after the intervention versus those who might have done uh, absent an intervention. I mean, one thing that immediately comes to my mind, just today I saw a Yazidi um, representative saying that basically for the first time ever, he sees no possible future for the Yazidis in Iraq in 2022. And I followed very closely as well from afar, uh, a, a, an entirely different uh, species of following such things. But I, I paid a certain amount of attention to the Christian communities in, uh, in the west of Iraq and the Yazidis and so on and so forth. So we had a genocide, right? We had a, an internationally recognized genocide in Iraq and Syria. and. This leads me to ask, I mean, you say, if we're going to intervene, then we have to understand the nations we're intervening in. And it seems that one thing we have not often understood is how deeply divided the societies are. Is that something that resonates with your experience? Or um, because the minorities often seem to suffer in the wake of our of our interventions. No, I
0: think you're right. I mean, I think the minorities do often suffer. There are so many levels of failure here. Uh, I was asked this question recently about Afghanistan. I mean, it really goes all the way in Afghanistan, or, you know, all the way from, from Washington and London down to maybe not the commanding officers on the ground, but certainly one step above that. And the system almost sets people up to fail. I think one of the problems is that in terms of Western behavior in these countries, and I don't mean how you behave on a Friday night, I mean, in terms of policy, the incentives are set up in a way that almost dooms them to fail. And this is something I noticed very much when I was working for NATO is the incentive was please your boss, make your boss look good, don't ask too many questions and go along with the prevailing wind. And it's very difficult to buck that trend and keep your job for any amount of time. So going to your question about, um, I mean, there are lots of different bits to it. You know, would we be better off with Saddam or not? Of course, we don't know because 2011, who knows what would have happened in Iraq, whether there would have been a popular uprising or something, you know, and also Syria and Iraq are different, of course. But I do agree that this idea that we shoot our way in, impose Western democracy and everything is going to be fine is extremely naive and has proved to be extremely unsuccessful, certainly in the case of Iraq and and Afghanistan.
1: I remember reading um, uh, Max Hastings speak recently. He published a book last year on uh, on the Vietnam War, and he said his theory, having written the book as to why the Americans lost Vietnam, he said it was simply because the Vietnamese were Vietnamese. He's saying basically, if you have an investment in your community, you're always going to be more invested in, in the outcome than if you're from the place than a foreign power essentially. And this seems to be a pattern that plays out across so many conflicts. Uh, particularly if you look at Afghanistan, you know, throughout history, it's been uh, it's been I think very much the case at all the great game period and so on and the Soviets and now obviously with the Americans but uh, but this suggests it's I mean, you're suggesting as well that there's incompetence, but is the nature of that incompetence? Is it purely the the incentives people have? Or is it there mm-hmm. inbuilt sort of naivety about how the world works? Or are they inextricably intertwined problems?
0: Well, you know, I mean, in the case of Afghanistan, ironically, in some ways, the Soviets were much better than the West was. Um, The job that I did, if I had been a Soviet political officer, I would have gone to university At least a year to learn the language, probably more like two or three years to learn something about politics and science and so on and so on, political science. And then I would have been deployed for four years. And what we did, the job that I did, people were deployed for three or four months, something like 40% of that time they were on leave, being shipped back and forth to their home countries to have weekends with their family or whatever. But of course, the logistics of that mean that you're away for a long period of time. So, you know, part of it is the problem of the way we do it. I think Afghanistan is extremely difficult. I mean, we've seen the Soviets fail. We've seen the Americans fail. We've seen the Brits fail multiple times in the 19th century. There, It is a very, very difficult place to deal with. And we have this hubris that we go in there and we think that we know what they want. And it's just simply not the case. And when you get there and you realize that what you thought was happening is not happening, you kind of have a couple of choices. You either say, oh, dear, this is not what I thought it was going to be, whether you're a political officer or a general or whatever. Um, or you sort of close your eyes to the real reality and say, well, there's a plan and we just have to follow it. You're kind of doomed whichever way you go. If you follow the plan and the plan is useless, then things are just going to get worse. If you try and sort of recreate your own view of things and implement that, you're pulling in a different direction from somebody else in the same organization who's paid to do something very similar that you are. I mean, Afghanistan is a, is a PhD subject. It's a very, very complex. It's a difficult thing for Westerners to get their head around. And also very importantly, and I think this also applies to the modern situation in Ukraine, there is no one metric. There's not even three metrics. There's 10 or 15. In my other life, strangely, um, I spend a lot of time in the bush in Canada um, looking for grizzly bears. And people often say to me, how do you find a grizzly bear? And I can explain how to find a grizzly bear. But there are 10 or 15 things you have to take into account at least. It's the same with Ukraine. It's the same with Afghanistan. The idea that we go in and we say it's all about coin, counterinsurgency, it's all about narcotics, it's all about anything you like is just not the case. It's more complex than that. Are we up to dealing with those complexities? No. So are these interventions destined to fail? Perhaps they are. With Perhaps with a much more limited series of aims and a more limited time span, as in the case of you could argue Sierra Leone, though I don't feel particularly strongly for that argument, but it could be argued. Then maybe you can succeed. But you have to have a it's gotta be going in, short time frame. Getting out and knowing exactly, specifically what you want to achieve. I mean, one thing that really irritates me about Afghanistan is this whole thing about we went in for the Afghan women. We didn't. We did no service to the Afghan women whatsoever, except possibly a few hundred, a couple of thousand women in Kabul. The rest of the country, that in terms of women, suffered because of our intervention they didn't there was no net gain for them so to justify it in these kind of fluffy happy terms i find uh, extremely annoying it doesn't match the situation on the ground
1: you've reminded me again of of this book i read a few years ago by again rory stewart which i think is a he's a very interesting uh, commentator on afghanistan and uh, he uh, said that if you he has this very compelling well very uh, Striking passage where he says, if you take one of the internationally produced policy documents on Afghanistan, you know, the position papers, and if you word search it and uh, for words like synergy and governance and all these sorts of technocratic words, they're all there, of course. But if you word search it for words like Islam or Pashtun or Northern Alliance or any word that's specific to Afghanistan, there's none in these documents. And he said, in fact, if you word searched Afghanistan and replaced it with Botswana, you wouldn't know which country it was about. There are these flat packed sort of IKEA. Type documents, you know these these technocratic gossamer, I think he calls it. But he also says something else that I think is really resonates or uh, with what you've just said, which is that he said that people have viewed international de- uh, intervention through an entirely the wrong lens. They see it as a theory that can be studied at the Kennedy School of Government, but he said no, it's not like a theory. It's like mountain rescue. To be a good mountain rescuer, you need to know those mountains, those weather systems. And uh, but from this, I have a question for you: that the the, the problems you've outlined about the failure of understanding. Because the institutions that went there, the governments that went there had a very sort of uh, uh, theoretical approach. I'm wondering to what extent the same problem uh, maps onto journalism uh, these days increasingly. Because this idea of knowing a language and spending many years embedded in the country obviously applies to uh, bureaucrats and technocrats and so on. But I wonder to what extent uh, journalism sometimes suffers the same things, given that the budget for journalism is much, uh, much smaller now, I imagine papers don't have as much money to invest in training someone up in the languages, leaving them in country, even when there's nothing going on, so they can stay part of it. Is that a problem in journalism? And to the extent it is, what impact is it having on the reporting we receive?
0: Uh, There is a there's a problem along those lines in journalism. I mean, there's a couple of problems. The first one, it's worth noting in journalism, you know, I was very lucky because I kind of had the end of the golden era of the foreign correspondent. I was properly paid. I had a staff. I had a huge expense account and my job was to cover, my last job before I left was to cover Russia and the former Soviet Union and some, I did some war stuff as well mixing mixing the two and uh but you're right i mean budgets have been cut i think one of the problems now is that again you have to look at incentives bringing up the wilderness again you know i've spent the last 15 years having it drilled into me by people who know the wilderness far better than i do whether it's bears or animal tracking or biology or whatever it is be cautious in your assessments don't let your ego get in the way don't jump to conclusions think laterally look at it from the other point of view weigh the evidence and then weigh it again. You're not encouraged to do that as a journalist these days. You're encouraged to do the exact opposite, especially if you're writing any form of comment, you're encouraged to come up with a radical viewpoint that either people love because it fits in with their worldview or they hate because it dramatically opposes their worldview and people are gonna buy that copy and newspapers wanna make money. So, and there's no sort of check back. So if people don't turn around and say three months later, oh, by the way, your predictions were completely wrong. We're going to fire you. They don't care. Nobody cares about that sort of thing. So that's a big problem in journalism. Write something that is controversial and people will read and talk about, and you're kind of off to a good start. Um, You're seeing a lot of that about Ukraine Russia at the moment. and We can talk about that in a bit. The truth is we don't know a lot of what Around the story of whether Russia is going to go into Ukraine, we simply don't know some of the key information and nobody does, except perhaps Vladimir Putin. So when I hear journalists predicting, I have a bit of a problem with that because I don't think they're doing that. I don't think they're thinking it through properly. The other thing I was going to say um, about journalism, you made one more point and I'm trying to think what it was now. And this is more to do with factual journalism. Oh, yes. So learning the theory. When I was, you know, my last official job, for the Daily Telegraph was Moscow correspondent. They change journalists out every four years and they do the same with diplomats. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that after a certain amount of time in a country, even though you know the country extremely well, you can no longer see the wood for the trees. You lose the big perspective. And I remember arriving in Moscow on the heels of a very, very good uh, Moscow correspondent who spoke perfect Russian and knew the country inside out. And I'm thinking, gosh, I'm never going to be able to be anything like that in terms of my expertise. And perhaps I wasn't, but I saw things differently and I saw things with a fresh eye. And there's some value to that as well. And sometimes I think in life it's extremely important. And I found this a really important lesson operating in war zones is forget about what everybody's saying. Take 10 steps back. Go back to first principles and try and figure it out yourself. And I totally agree with you that this idea of copy and pasting templates, theories, worldviews—this is not the way to deal with these countries. You know, in the case of Afghanistan, I remember going to a planning session in London, and and the Ministry of Defence sat down with DFID, which was then the Overseas Aid Ministry, and um, the Foreign Ministry, and they basically. They had a meeting about Afghanistan, and they basically thrashed out what each of those ministries wanted, with no reference whatsoever as to what was happening on the ground. And then they said, "We have a joint analysis." And I remember interrupting and saying, "That's not a joint analysis. That's a political wish list written in London that has nothing to do with Afghanistan." Um, Well, of course, that those kind of objections are unwelcome because they go against the grain. So there, there. Different issues at different levels, I suppose.
1: It's interesting, your final comment there about the um, the DFID wish list. I've uh, seen it written that often when you look at these documents about Afghanistan, where they talk about the importance of uh, uh, the rule of law and good governance and all these other things uh, and cross-cutting uh, initiatives and uh, gender sensitivity and all the rest of it. All those uh, language, it's not a description of what they have, but a description of what is not there. And uh, it's often the case that uh, if you look at these policy documents, I find that they're built on negation. They're a description of what is missing. That is not the same thing as a diagnosis as to why it's missing, nor indeed what the cure might be if there is a cure.
2: I would just add as a, as a note that it seems to me that, de, you know, demonstrably, observably, this precisely kind of tech, technocratic lexicon and uh, style of analysis is clearly not even working for European and uh, some of the American powers, right? I mean, there, there are disconnects to be observed much closer to home. Uh, not only not only in the far abroad. Can I ask you I was I was reminded um, when when you were talking about the need to sort of get close to the the events and and shut oneself off from what you're hearing. I was reminded of a phrase um, which is a bit oblique, but um, I associate it with the great I say this in a neutral sense, the great warmaker Robert McNamara, um, but the phrase the fog of war and this idea that war is so chaotic and so unpredictable and so immersive that one finds it basically, increasingly impossible to find points of orientation and clarity and and I suppose this is a way of trying to bring it back to your experience did you find that there were things that the experience of war clarified and actually um, r- rather than obscuring that you understood or felt or uh, could intuit or articulate certain things about yourself or the world or the nation you were in more clearly as a result of uh, the the intensity yeah right.
0: absolutely and on lots of different levels I mean psychologically, emotionally, in terms of values, in terms of policy, yes, it happened at lots of levels. Not always, to a great extent. It depended on the conflict. But war is a radical environment to work in. It's probably something that's closer to our sort of evolutionary past than the way we generally live today. And in that sense, it pushes you into, you're using a different set of, you're not using a different set of senses, but you're using your senses differently, your decision-making is different. And I think the key to good decision-making in those instances is to be able to, I mean, if you look at the fog of war, it is to discard things that simply don't add to the real picture. So, you know, to a very sort of practical example, Say you're in a frontline town in Iraq, as I was once, and there were a bunch of journalists there, and they all decided it was too dangerous to stay there for whatever reason, and they all sort of moved off as a gaggle. Now that movement is only as good as the analysis is based on. So you look at them and you think, right? Well, they've collectively decided that, but based on what exactly? So in that case, and this is something I encourage my students at my Tashkoriyevnas Colloquium: think for yourself. If they don't have extra information that you also have, then learn to think for yourself, go through that process yourself. And sometimes the result of that analysis is inconceivable, but it doesn't mean it's not gonna happen. And I'll give you a a very kind of um, difficult example, but very sort of extreme example of that. I covered the um, terrorism attack on the school in Beslan in 2004 in southern Russia. 350 people were killed, about 170 children were killed. So when I got there, and by then I'd been working in war zones or conflict zones or whatever it was for quite a long time. So when I got there, the first thing I did is, well, I did two things. I walked the perimeter as best I could. I was frequently stopped and detained by Russian security forces, but I had a press pass and they would let me go. There'd be a chat and they'd let me go. Um, And the second thing I did is I sat in a corner and I thought, right, how is this going to play out? Putin is not going to give in. That's a 99% certainty. Is Basayev and the Chechen terrorist leadership going to give up? No, they're not. Therefore, this is going to be a shootout. So you're looking at a school with a thousand people in it And your brain does not allow you to imagine the fact that many of those people are going to die in the very near future. But if you go through it logically, there are no other obvious outcomes or there are no there really are no other conceivable outcomes. And I think this is an important kind of logical process that if we close out the if we close out, you know, outcome A, B, C, D, E, then we're left with outcome F and G. And however unlikely they might seem to us, that's probably what's going to happen. And that's exactly what did happen. That's exactly what happened. And we still don't know the exact details of the shootout, who gave the order. There's a lot of controversy around it, but there was a horrible shootout and hundreds of people died. And that was predictable, unfortunately. It's
1: interesting, as a, almost thinking about it philosophically, that one thinks of war as being chaotic. But in some sense, it's almost the context where the outcomes have a certain logic, which we don't often see in more ordered situations. Societies are very irrational. But when people have such clear incentives to maintain their position in the case of that conflict, then as you say, you can, you can map out the logical outcomes, what's most likely. I never considered that before. That's interesting.
0: Well, consequences are far higher yeah. for everybody concerned. And, and so that does a few different things. It pushes us onto the front foot. It, you know, it doesn't allow us to kind of casually. I mean, some people bumble their way through wars, but generally you don't. So that's one thing. And then it brings out, I mean, in personality terms, it brings out extremes. A lot of people behave extremely badly in war. And I'm talking about the participants, the combatants now, not journalists or diplomats. Um, but some people don't. Some people behave incredibly. You look at them and, I'm, and the, you know, I've seen a number of things in my life where people who had really lost almost everything that was important to them turned around and showed a huge act of generosity to their neighbor or perhaps even somebody they didn't know. Um, And you think, wow, the human spirit really is quite remarkable. And the more pressure you put it under, the more unexpected the outcome somehow. It can be negative, but it can also be positive. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on there. And of course, you know, one of the difficult things for people like me is that as miserable and depressing and traumatizing as long exposure to war can be, it's usually also the most meaningful time in our lives because it's potentially when we were at our best, our most engaged, our most, most kind of, you know, we were, we were on, we were on our front feet. We were on our toes. We were doing the best that we possibly could, whether that was operational or moral or whatever it happened to be. Um, And that's something people don't talk very much about. There's a lot of talk about, you know, young men who go to war, particularly Americans and Brits and others, and who come back severely traumatized. And that's absolutely true. Um, But what people don't talk about so much is the fact that for a lot of those young men, it's going to be the most exciting thing they ever did in their life. Their country is telling them they're doing the right thing. They're giving them very high levels of equipment and gear and training and then they get out there and they've got this huge camaraderie. They are living on the edge of their abilities. And after that, the war finishes, whatever has happened has happened. They go home and they're told, okay, you're working in Walmart or whatever it happens to be, $12 an hour, off you go. Well, that sometimes is the cause of the, whatever happens next, whether it's suicide or trauma or dysfunction or whatever. Separating that from the war itself is difficult, but it's a cliche. It's, it's too much of a cliche for me to say that wars mess you up. It can come. You can have lots of different outcomes.
2: It's interesting. Last last fall here at the Danube Institute, we had a, a series of lectures on the Czech philosopher Jan Patochka I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's not very well known, but he, a significant uh, Czech philosopher of uh, the last generation. And at the very end of uh, this text that we were looking at, he talks about um, the phenomena. He calls them phenomena of both love and freedom that one can find in certain situations of conflict which we associate war certainly with with hatred right um and and with uh you know kind of animosity overpowering animosity let's say but i'm I'm curious if if the these are experiences these are words which in any way resonate with your experience of situation such absolutely. extreme absolutely, situations
0: absolutely totally um I've got a very close friend called Anthony Lloyd, who still, is still a war correspondent to this day, to his great credit. I mean, he's been doing it for 30 years. And um, we were talking about this a week ago, and he was trying to explain the bond that there is between soldiers who have been through, in this case, these were young British soldiers in Afghanistan. And the only word he could come up with was love. Um, There may be a better word for it, but it's something very akin to that. We're not talking about any kind of sexualized weird stuff here. It's that bond. The bond is immense. And I mean, I'm going back in, um, in April, hopefully, to Kosovo, because I've been contacted by a young man who 20... Four years ago was a, was a five-year-old boy and his family were massacred by the Serbs in a particularly brutal massacre that happened in 1998 in Kosovo. And uh, at the time I had a lot to do with the boy and a lot to do with his family and I helped them as best I could. Um, he was clearly not in a good way. and. Uh, Two and a half years ago, he contacted me through Fami on Facebook somehow, and he contacted me and he said, "I've always heard about you. I really, really want to meet you." And um, for me, that's an incredibly meaningful thing. It's a, um, you know in terms of things that are important in my life. I'm not saying it's the most important, it's not, but it's, it ranks highly. And I thought about it quite a lot. It's a very it's sort very of interesting psychologically as well. Uh, my wife, my wife died a couple of years ago, but this was about six months before that. And she turned around to me and said, you're, you're quite upset by this. You're quite disturbed by it. Why is that? And I thought about it. I, didn't, I couldn't quite figure it out in the beginning. And then what I realized was that this had become a sort of a cocooned in my memory, this whole episode of what had happened. And I was about to go and reopen that box. And I didn't know quite what I was going to find, both in myself, but also in the boy. And I realized that, you know, I might be very disappointed by what I find because I've turned it into this sort of, almost sort of golden nugget of something in my memory. But equally, he might be very disappointed in me. He's turned me into a white knight in shining armor who turned up and helped him out at his hour of great need. And um, regardless of whether these things are good or bad, it almost doesn't matter if they're good or bad, positive or negative, they are absolutely packed with meaning, emotional meaning, psychological meaning. And I think I mean, I'm in my 50s, I'm not old. But I think as we do get older, things like that become incredibly important to us in our lives. Um, and war generates a lot of them.
2: A the question I have, which is some somewhat related, and I don't want to pry but um, it I'm curious because one of the—I mean—we were discussing freedom, and um, one of the differences potentially between someone like this, this boy in Kosovo, and and you—and I'm sure there are a thousand other circumstances in which we could we could place you—but one of the peculiarities of the, the war correspondent is, on some level, they choose to be there, right? Um, whereas many who are caught up in a conflict or not. They have no choice. And then soldiers, at least, are are sometimes some sort of gray zone. You can volunteer, so on and so forth. You can be drafted. But I'm curious, is is this this idea of sort of placing yourself in this situation, is that something that to your mind alters the experience? Or is it nonetheless so immersive when you are there that um, these differences just vanish?
0: It totally alters the experience. And I think for long term, war correspondence is a source of great guilt because ultimately you can be sitting in a place like whatever it is, Baghdad, Sarajevo, Kabul, wherever. You have money, you have a passport, you have a flak jacket, you have a helmet, you have a satellite phone. And sitting next to you can be a six-year-old kid who has none of these things. You have a dinner that evening, and he or she may or may not. I'm not, you know, I'm against the sort of cult of the voyeur. I'm against people who go to war zones just to feel the experience. I think that's it's not that it's disrespectful exactly. It's just kind of crass. Um, so I think as a as a journalist or as any part any voluntary participant in a war zone, you have to have a good reason for going there. You have to have a good reason to stay there at least. And you you are an outsider. These people are going through an existential struggle. And you're not. You may get shot in the process or hurt or captured or injured or whatever. But you're not part of that existential struggle. You're an outsider. And in a way, you know, to the question of journalism here, your job actually is not to be a local. It's not to be one of them. It's to be the bridge between what is happening on the ground and the people who are reading or listening or watching at home. And you have to remember that second bit of the equation, too. If what you're transmitting or writing is inaccessible to the people you're writing it for because you're too close to the story, you're writing things they simply can't fathom or can't understand about, then you're not really doing your job. So there are complexities there. It's very, you know, I'm going to bring in bears just one more time because they're so illustrative. I spent a huge amount of time watching bears in the bush and I've seen a thousand or fifteen hundred or maybe even two thousand bears and it all comes down to fine body language with bears i mean if the Guy's charging you, he's charging you. But most of the time, understanding a bear's disposition, intent, level of nervousness, and so on, it comes down to fine body language. We're actually very good at this as humans. We do it all the time. Not You don't have to go to the bush to see this. We do it all the time in the streets, in the cities, all the time. We meet someone, and they'll say something, and we say, you know what, that didn't quite ring true for me. And we meet someone else, and they'll say almost exactly the same thing, and we'll think, uh, you know, that's a really sort of good, honest assessment. So I think we're quite good as humans at understanding the minutiae of other humans and i think that i can't remember why exactly i started talking at this point but i think that part of you know operating in these high stress environments whether it's a grizzly bear whether it's a war zone is allowing yourself to tune in to these these little things and and we're quite good at assessing whether something is whether somebody is speaking truly or falsely based on the sort of way that they present and that that's sort of thing. we're not experts and we get fooled and People who are good, you know, con men, con women will be able to fool a huge amount of people, no question about that. But that's something I've really learned to watch for myself in the bush. If I get a feeling down the back of my neck that something's going wrong, there's probably something going wrong. It's my job to figure out what that is. Something's happened that I haven't necessarily processed directly, but something is bugging me.
1: It's interesting that you say that because um, obviously I think the, there's a popular caricature of the war correspondent as the the adrenaline junkie of journalists. Um, but what you're describing is actually there almost requires the most emotionally intelligent. Uh, journalists are not necessarily the most sensitive in a sense but the most sensitive in terms of vulnerable sensitivity but the most attuned and intuitive to the people around them and would you say it's a top form of journalism that that particularly requires people with with a high level of the ability to read a room in a sense
0: I think those I think the best war correspondents have that doesn't mean they all have it and just like any other profession in the world I mean there's a lot of pretty lousy war correspondents pretty lousy journalists and all, all kind you know so I don't want to generalize about all of them there are also people you meet who are war correspondents, some of them long-serving, and you meet them for five minutes and you say, buddy, this is all about you and your ego. This has nothing to do with the story. So there are lots of psychological profiles here. But I think the people, for me, empathy is very important quality of a war correspondent. It also makes you vulnerable, which is sort of an interesting trade-off. But being able to read situations Yeah, understand the minutiae. I think it is a very important aspect.
1: Related to that, um, in the last few years with the internet has, of course, democratized everything. Everyone can now have a blog and so on. But one form of that is... Podcast. Podcast, indeed. Everyone's got a podcast. But there's also this sort of uh, gonzo war correspondence. You know, these people who are typically not always sort of uh, young men, 20s or something. They've got a a blog. I can think of a couple. I won't name them. But they have a website and they, they don't seem to publish with any major newspapers, but they have their blog, they have a following on Twitter, they go off to whatever conflict. And there's one uh, in particular, I, I'm thinking of, but, uh, uh, but I know the interpretation they have, it's it's partly sometimes I wonder, well, how much of this is just voyeurism wanting to, to almost a sort of rubbernecking of conflict, but also um, how much of it is partisan, because the, the, the reporting seems very partisan sometimes on conflicts. And I, I'm wondering, what's your view of that? But on the flip side, is it possible for a war correspondent to walk in and be dispassionate about it and not have some partisanship in the in the given conflict?
0: Well, the second bit first, um, I think we have to be a bit granular in the way we look at we have to know exactly what we're talking about. And people talk very loosely about terms like neutrality, dispassion, um, fairness, um, objectivity, objectivity. And they're all different. For me, being neutral has never been an ambition of mine as a journalist. And I don't think it's your job. I think your job is to find out what's happening on the ground. Um, Nobody suggested that if you were at the liberation of Auschwitz in 1944, that you were going to say, well, the Germans say this and the victims say this, but the Germans maintain. That's not really part of your job. So I think neutrality is a bit of a kind of a false flag in this argument. Objectivity is a very interesting one. Objectivity, when you're talking about policy, yes, I think it's an absolute plus, but objectivity and empathy are kind of in the opposite sides of the room. And it is legitimate to be empathetic as a journalist and to describe the feelings, the suffering, the plight, whatever it is, of one particular person or group within a war zone. I think that's totally legitimate, providing that you don't extrapolate beyond what you're talking about. What you can't say is I went in there, I met a woman, she told me this, and therefore that's what the war is like. You can't say that, that's, that's illegitimate. But to describe the woman's plight with maybe a couple of caveats saying, this is all I saw, but this is what I saw. I think that's absolutely fine. In terms of the big picture, for me, fairness is the important one. You've got to be fair. You've got to be fair to both sides or all sides. You've got to be, you can, you don't have to pull your punches. I mean, if we're messing up in Afghanistan, we're messing up in Afghanistan. That's fine. And when I say that, we is the West. You can say that, providing that you're being fair to the actors. You're not just coming in with an outside worldview and imposing it onto a situation because that's the way that you think. And I've had wars, um, and one really sticks in my head, where I did have sympathies after a long time of watching one side you know, bang the hell out of the other side. But then at the end, when the sort of peace came, things started flipping around. And at that point, you have to have the mental ability, flexibility and you have to have the humility to say, you know what, this is no longer what I thought it was. And this is no longer what I wanted it to be. And this no longer fits in with my view of the world, but this is how it is. I'm just gonna have to say how it is. And that's a really important one for journalists. And it's tough, it's tough sometimes. And it's tough to have people who have been saying to you, you know, oh, you're covering our plight, it's so cool. And then they're like, hang on a minute, why are you writing that about us? And you're like, well, unfortunately, that's what's happening, that's what I can see. So, you know, for me, Hard work is a really, really important ingredient. You've got to get out there as a journalist. You've got to meet these people. You've got to talk to lots of different people. You've got to put in the hours. And then you've got to have the sort of mental flexibility, the humility to ignore what the crowd is saying. And when I say the crowd, I mean other journalists and really be very hard on yourself and very as honest as you can be with yourself and say, I think this is happening. And this is the evidence I have for it, and this is what I'm going to write. Do the incentives lie that way? No, because that often leads to complexity, and nobody likes complexity. Unfortunately, not readers, not viewers, not editors. Nobody. They all want a you know clean position on something, but life is not always like that.
1: Just a just a very quick uh, question, kind of related to the other part of my question about the sort of uh, Gonzo war correspondence, but. I mean, do you feel there's ever a tension between, uh, when you're a journalist, obviously, you're writing for readers, you're writing for the audience back home to inform them. Is there ever a, a tension between the commitment to the readers and, and then the circumstantial commitments uh, or you, f- you, you feel uh, for the people you meet in those, in those areas? Is there ever a tension? there? Oh, yeah, there's a huge
0: tension. There's a huge tension because you want to do the best by the people that you're writing about. But at some level, at some point, you realize it's either too detailed or too brutal or too whatever for the readers. And so, yes, no, you're absolutely balancing those different things. There's another big tension in being a war correspondent, being a journalist generally, but especially being a war correspondent, which is that if you become well-established, a lot of people want to read about what you're doing, not what is happening there um there's there's a film that i show to my students and it's about 1992 in sarajevo and there's this um there's this great scene where it's i mean it's fictional more or less but it's based on fact where the america you know the famous american journalist uh, someone turns around to him and said you just did a piece that's all about you and he said yeah but people know who i am in america and they don't know where the hell bosnia is so at what point is that legitimate or not? It's certainly a process I regret, this idea that journalists talk about themselves. I mean, for me, there was a story in Kabul one of the CNN correspondents did this big story about how she had to put a headscarf on. Well. I'm sorry, that doesn't tell me anything about, anything about Afghanistan, but at the same time, I can see why it's attractive to editors and why it's attractive to viewers. It's an, it's an easier way. It's more accessible than trying to understand a country. You know, for example, uh, my brother works a lot in Ethiopia. I mean, trying to explain, and I'm no Ethiopia expert, but trying to explain what's happening in Ethiopia to my students, it takes about you know, eight seconds before the eyes glaze over. But if I say to them, I went there, which I've never been to Ethiopia, but if I say I went there and I got shot at and, dah, 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 and this happened to me and this is what I felt, I can engage them much better. So I'm not trying to be too purist about it, but the general thing I think is part of the age that we live in, you know, we do unfortunately live in a fairly narcissistic age, social media, short attention spans, and this plays into that trend of, it encourages that trend of a war correspondent making the story about themselves rather than about whatever's happening on the ground.
2: I have a question which kind of brings us back to maybe where we were a few minutes ago. but uh, I'm curious, and, and I, I think at some point um, we, we want to at least mention the the tensions kind of emanating from Ukraine at the moment and get back to your spectator piece. And so maybe this could be a lead into that. But I'm curious about the sense in which, I mean, the actual, you know, the experience of the front, the experience of shelling and being shot at, I would assume places you in the present, in the moment, in a really sort of incomparable way. But at the same time, so many conflicts are about history, right? They're about Often pasts which antedate the, the the lives of those who are fighting them, and they're also to some extent about a deep future, right? So there there are these like deep time scales involved in most yeah. conflicts, yeah. And, and yet the experience itself is uh, kind of the the very pinnacle of the present. I'm just curious if you have any uh, any thoughts on this, or or how it relates to the, the the reformulation of the conflict in in journalistic terms.
0: I mean, it's almost a little bit. You're right. You have to be able to tap into those longer more historical trends but it's almost a little bit like you go out fishing you're not quite sure what you're going to get you go out and you talk to people and you're not quite sure what they're going to say i remember this uh, i was in um, i was in ukraine about four years ago and i was down on the front line with um, the separatist enclaves near donetsk uh, i was talking to a guy there and he said you know i listen to the radio every day and he said you know when i was young we were all part of the same country and we were patriotic soviets and we were fighting the nazis and and now the russians are bad and the ukrainians are good and oh man this all gives me a bit of a headache and then he looked at me and he said the problem is history is so unpredictable and uh, but what he was talking about was the presentation of history obviously rather than history itself but i thought it was a kind of an interesting way that um you know the narratives of history come through everything i mean they come through the politics very much Um, You you need to look at the Ukraine situation right now. I mean, um, history is being presented in a very particular way by everybody, I guess. So yes, and I think your job is not just to say, you know, the bullet flashed over my head, the thing cannon nearby, this poor guy. Got shot or killed or hurt or whatever. It's to put it put it into some kind of context, but with a relevant amount of humility, because it takes time to understand what's going on. I remember I was sent to Afghanistan. I mean, I barely knew where the place was. I found two books and I read them on the airplane to find the very basics, and that was pretty standard after nine eleven. Very few, I mean, some people had been there, but most people hadn't. Looking at the present Ukraine Russia thing, I think, I mean, this conflict almost well, there's no conflict yet, and hopefully there won't be one. But this issue almost more than any other, has become a canvas for people to project their worldview onto. And it's immensely complex. And probably because it's complex, it allows for that. People can make all kinds of predictions. They can come up with all kinds of analyses. For me, if I look at it, and I've tried to do the same sort of thing I did at Beslan, which is take 10 steps back and not look at all the fog and the noise and just look at the basics. But I still come down to this thing of, I always come back to the same thing. There's a From Putin's point of view, there's about 10 good reasons for him to invade Ukraine. And there are about 10 bad reasons, or there are 10 good reasons not to invade Ukraine. Um, I defy anybody to predict with any sense of certainty as to how he's going to react to that. We can look at the past, we can look at what he did in Georgia, we can look at what he did in Donbass or Crimea. That tells us what happened in the past but we don't know that that's what's gonna happen now. There are so many different ways of looking at it that I'm fairly confident about my analysis in the Ukraine-Russia situation. And I say that as someone who spent four years in Russia and quite a bit of time in Ukraine. But the ultimate question as to what is gonna happen and when is it gonna happen, I have no idea. I know what the inputs into the machine will be, but I don't know what the machine is going to spit out. I mean, in terms of some of the reasons to go in, I think Putin is looking at legacy very much now. Um, He genuinely sees Ukraine as a historical part of Russia. He's not faking that. There are some interesting psychological things that he doesn't believe in chance. He doesn't believe in, um, you know, he believes everything is happens for a reason. Nothing ever happens by chance. He's also a control freak. He wants to control all the parameters around something. That's a reason not to go in, by the way, because this, on day two, we don't even know what's going to happen on day two of the conflict, never mind day 32 or whatever it is. So there are certain things we know about Putin. We can see the emotion with which he talks about Ukraine. He either fundamentally believes what he is saying about Ukraine in turn, well, all the different narratives about them being, you know, sort of pro-fascist and an intrinsic part of Russia and Russians who are being drawn away from the motherland by the West and all this kind of stuff. Or he has talked himself into that. I don't believe he's faking those positions for some kind of tactical advantage. I think he genuinely at this point, believes it. And a lot of people around him believe it. Reasons not to go, other reasons to go into Ukraine, he, he does genuinely think the West is divided. Uh, Germany looks very weak. Um, Biden looks weak. The European Union looks weak. So if there's a good time to go in, it might be now. I also think there's a calculation on the part of the Russians that, and possibly Hitler had this calculation in 1940, possibly he didn't, which is to say that if there's going to be a conflict with the West, if it is inevitable, if we are in a zero-sum game, existential you know, fight for our existence with the West, it's better to have it now than in a year's time or two years time or three years time. These stars are better aligned for us for a conflict now rather than later. So those are all reasons he might Possibly go in. Um, Reasons against it. Russia is relatively stable right now. We don't know exactly because there's no democratic process to test that, but relatively stable, it seems to be. He's going to risk a relatively stable position for absolute, if he loses this war in a meaningful way, in the way the Americans lost the Afghan war, for example, he's out. No Russian leader is going to, I I predict, maybe I'm going out on a limb, I don't know. I predict that a Russian leader and most leaders cannot survive a major military defeat and walk away with their even their pensions, never mind their job. So why take that risk? What are other good reasons not to go in? There's another interesting psychological thing here, which is because the Russians, because the Kremlin have been saying for so long that Ukrainians are basically Russians, who speak a slightly different language and there are a few fascists in the west but basically they're russians that turns this into a civil war that turns this into a psychologically turns, and emotionally it turns it into a civil war and i think that's a very hard sell to the russian people maybe on day one when they still think they're fighting german tank columns or something from 1944 or 41 but l- It makes it a hard sell in the sort of medium term. If you look at the opinion polls, um, Crimea was immensely popular. Donbass was never very popular in Russia. It's still not very popular. The idea of occupying and holding Ukraine against any kind of resistance, I think, will be, predictably, it'll be unpopular. He must be thinking about that. Anyway, those are sort of three or four of the 10 or 15. To talk about it all day. Thank you
1: so much, Julius, for coming in. And it's been fascinating to talk to you. This has been a, a really interesting uh, discussion. Thank you, David, as well for the questions. So thank you very much, Julius. Have a good day.
0: Thank you.